This is the show where we let you inside the doors of a world-renowned personal training studio. Welcome to the Enterprise Fitness Podcast. I'm Mark Otobri, owner and founder, here to introduce the show with Enterprise Master Trainer, Reese Adams, and today's guest, Stefan Kazelt. Stefan Kazelt is the founder of Kilo. At age 14, Stefan knew he wanted to be a strength coach. He has spent the last 24 years perfecting his work. He has a strong formal academic foundation, earning a bachelor's degree in exercise science from the University of Montreal. During this time, he has worked with mentors to learn the practical skills necessary to enable athletes to achieve physical superiority. In his career, Stefan has personally trained professional athletes in football, baseball, and hockey. He's worked with athletes from from pro teams from the NFL, the MLB, and the NHL. These teams include the New England Patriots, the St. Louis Rams, uh, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Cardinal Flames, and the Washington Capitals. Prior to starting Kilo, Stefan was the director of strength and conditioning for the Poliquin Group from 2012 to 2016 and the high performance director at the Central Institute of Human Performance from 2005 to 2012. Stefan's passion is program design and this is certainly something you can listen to on this podcast with Reese. His program design is carefully structured with every possible component taken into consideration to ensure the trainee reaches and exceeds their goal making his work a combination of both science and arts. If you want more on Stefan, check out kilostrengthsociety.com or go to his Facebook page and look it up at Kilo Strength Society. Hope you guys enjoy this podcast and I'll see you on the other side. So welcome to the show, Stefan, and thanks for uh, taking the time out today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. For our listeners, can you please explain how you got into coaching? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, basically, like, if uh, you don't mind me starting from the beginning. No, of course not. Um, so when I was uh, eight and nine years old, uh, I moved from a small town in Quebec to uh, Burkina Faso, which is in Western Africa. And I lived there for uh, almost two years. And... Uh, you know, like uh, food, food was kind of scarce there. So when we got back to Canada, I was uh, 10 years old, almost 10 years old. And, you know, for lack of education and stuff with my parents, like I just started going crazy with eating ice cream and fruit juices and all that stuff. And in a matter of uh, a year or two, I went from a skinny kid, which I've always have been, to a kind of a chubby kid by the time I was 11. So at just 11 years of age, I was becoming pretty self-conscious about, you know, that weight that I gained. So that's when I I started looking at, you know, Schwarzenegger, like everybody in bodybuilding and all that stuff. And I started weight training at 11. And, uh, you know, so like the first couple of years, it was a big bodybuilding influence. Then I started playing American football. Uh, high school and college, it was a running back. Uh, during that time, the training kind of switched to football specific, but I always kind of had that uh, love for uh, bodybuilding at the same time. So, you know, as I got older and my body changed and like it was very clear to me that uh, I wanted to be a strength and conditioning coach and uh, <clears throat> growing up in Canada, um, outside of hockey, I mean, there's not much going on in terms of high-level professional sports and my favorite sport has always been American football so man uh, so my dream was I want to train NFL players someday so uh, you know I started like reading training I went to university in exercise science got my bachelor's degree did continuing education with Charlie Francis, Eric Serrano, John Berardi, Charles Bollockin, a bunch of people. And, you know, it just uh, it evolved this way. So, you know, I did my first uh, my first consult with Charles in 2001. Uh, did the their first biosignature ever, which was in Chicago in 2002. I did my PACP level one and two in 2004. And, you know, so, I mean, from then on, I was hired in St. Louis as a 
the uh, director of high performance for this like uh, high performance center there and that's when I started training professional athletes so it kind of evolved from there yeah so was that with Pollock and group the high performance center that you're talking about um no it, it was uh, <clears throat> well I mean it 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 was a chiropractor from St. Louis that uh, knew Charles he met Charles in uh, medical conferences and I knew that like I'm not super sure about the details but I knew that they were talking of maybe working together and um at the time I did my PICP level 1 and 2 with uh in Montreal with Nelson Ayat which at the time was kind of like the second in command of Charles at uh, his performance center in um, Arizona. And uh, like Nelson uh, was going to be the one leading the, that center in, in uh, St. Louis. And uh, so we, so Nelson is the one who hired me to come and work in St. Louis. But somehow the deal with, with Charles fell through. I'm not sure about the details. So it was a, a separate... Even though there was this big um, connection through Nelson, it was a kind of a separate, uh, completely separate business. Um, so that started in 2005. So uh, we started, We had, there was a lot of uh, hockey players from the St. Louis Blues. But, you know, like athletes talk, and so it just evolved to uh, America, to the NFL, which evolved with Major League Baseball and all that stuff. Yeah. So, who would be the main uh, clientele that you you coach now? Uh, so right now, um, right now I'm just doing online training. Ninety um, percent of my online training clients are PICP coaches, um, which is very good for me because you know, like it's what I really like doing is teaching. So a lot of them they they hire me for they hire me for training, but they also use the opportunity as continuing education which i really like doing uh, but as far as one-on-one goes it's still mostly professional athletes at the moment yeah if you don't mind me asking how did you um uh, go from the pollicon group to you're now um running your own company is it is that correct kilo strength society yeah well the, the name of the company exactly is kilo uh, but then like within kilo we have the what we call the kilo strength society which what I wanted to create is with the members, so anybody that's a client, either live or online, they're, they're a part of that community revolving around strength, uh, ends the name uh, Kilo Strength Society. Uh, but how I came about it, um, I mean, so I, I've been uh, for with Polican Group for four years now, and, you know, like the last year, I kind of, I was eager to just, like, start doing my own thing and going on my own and I just thought it was time. I'm, I'm I'm 38 years old right now, and I just wanted to to see what what was out there. So, um, basically, like in December, I went uh, on a vacation in the Dominican Republic, and one morning I woke up with the the kilo name, the whole concept, and I'm like, man, I think I just I'm just gonna do it. So early January, I went to uh, the owner, Caroline Jones, and I just uh, you know I left in good terms. I just explained to her that you know. We're, it was just time for me to move on, and everything was good from then on. Awesome. So with you, I've been uh, following a lot of your posts, and I've noticed yep. that in terms of periodization, you're probably, like, I'd say, uh, definitely one of the go-to guys, if not the best, from what I've seen. Um, what would be the first thing you personally would assess before writing a program for a client, like uh, structural balance-wise or uh, questions you might ask? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I really like a structural balance for sure. Um, I use it especially when, uh, even more so when I train people one-on-one because I'm I'm the one giving the assessment. Uh, but for online clients, since I have a lot of PICP people, it's either they provide me with their own results, but to be, on, to be honest, because they have so much knowledge themselves, I kind of go with where they are, what they're telling me, so... You know, if one of them has been training for 10 years and he's telling me that his rotator cuff is lagging and blah, blah, blah. I just I use this information to guide the uh, the programming. And then I always assess as we're going on, which is uh, the advantage of the, the, the software platform I use is I can I can always 
like every month or so, at least after every cycle, I go back and verify the weight progression and the, the tonnage and all that kind of stuff to make sure that the client is progressing and he's on track. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I it's mostly questionnaire, you know, and, you know, I mean, it's, as you know, like, uh, as I'm sure you know, like nobody is too strong in the rotator cuffs and trap three. So, you know, like as a general guideline, the first 12 week cycle, I will always tend to uh, prescribe more of those remedial exercise, but then I tend to get away from them a little bit more. Yeah. When, when you say more, uh, could you be a bit more specific on that? Yes, for sure. So uh, depending on the training split of the client, so if he has, uh, let's say, two upper body day or even if it's split with chest and back and one day it's arms and shoulder, uh, I will do uh, remedial work with every upper body workout. So we're talking about twice a week usually uh, or twice every five days depending on the split. But and anywhere from three uh, to five sets per uh, workout. I, I rarely go beyond that. So, you know, so with the arm and shoulder workout, I will start the workout with rotator cuff trap three or Powell raise or bent over lateral raise, something like that. Or with upper body, I tend to stack it towards the end of the workout. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so as not to, I guess, fatigue those stabilizing muscles before they get stuck into some heavy loading. Exactly. I mean, if the person, like if I know that the person is, is fairly weak, and he's, he hasn't trained in a while, the first structural balance phase, I will put it first because um, doing that remedial work tends to increase uh, activation and stability of the shoulder joint before they do the prime movers. But generally speaking, with my clientele, I stack it towards the end, except yeah. the arm workout. That, that's a good point. Uh, when you do that, obviously, um, you'd have less sets so as not to fatigue when you do, say, put it first. Would that be correct? Uh yeah, I mean, yeah, you're, you're, I mean, like I said, it's never much more than three, four, maybe sometimes five. And by the time I, I prescribe five sets, I mean, we're towards the last intensification phase. Um, because I, I will also use undulating periodization with rotator cuffs. So I might do the first accumulation, 15 reps, then intensification one, 10 reps, then 12 reps, then eight reps. So by the time he gets to eight reps, I might do five sets. And at that time, their conditioning for these remedial muscles is good enough for them to be able to cope with that time, kind of volume pretty easily. Yeah, awesome. So whilst the, the reps are high, the sets tend to be low. And then as the reps come down, you bring the sets up. Exactly. Awesome. Um, in terms of structuring your programs, uh, I know you're a big fan of accumulation and intensification phases. Uh, yeah. For you, how long do these phases tend to be? Do do um, or like, what kind of decisions do you take into consideration when uh, setting a set period of time for each of these? Yeah, I mean it's it's hard these type of questions because I don't have like a a set recipe that I use all the time. It really depends on who I'm working with, but I will say that generally speaking, the more beginner the uh, client is. Uh, I would I will use four week phases, so like a four week accumulation, four week intensification. Uh, as they get more advanced, it's usually three weeks. Three weeks uh, tends to work well with most, but then I have uh, like a lot of bodybuilders. Sometimes, to be honest, I might have an accumulation phase that lasts as a, uh, it could be as short as just five days. Well, wow. okay, yeah. Would that so that would be a very high volume then? Uh, high volume of very high intensity. So, I mean, the thing I've noticed uh, noticing with working with bodybuilders is, you know, a lot of them, they've been training forever. They've been pounding weights forever. They have a more uh, restrictive diet, uh, sometimes less fats depending on what they're doing. So the joints tend to um, get a beating a little bit more than, uh, you know, like uh, NFL linemen that weigh 210 pounds that are naturally big bone. So with these guys, I find that if I do a, a five-day cycle accumulation of a ton of volume, and for me, a ton of volume, I'm, talk, I'm talking about 36 sets in a workout, uh, I will alternate this, like the next five-day cycle, 
um, you will do an intensification, which the sets might be anywhere from 18 to 22, maybe 24. And then the intensity goes really high and the reps goes lower. So it's good because it allows them to use higher intensities, uh, increase strength, but without overtaxing their joint or the nervous system too much by backing off right after with more volume. And, and a lot of bodybuilders somehow naturally tends to uh, do a little bit better on higher volume. I don't know if it's just because uh, their earlier years in training was volume-based and they just feel more comfortable with it, but that's something I've noticed. Every time I start introducing too, too, many, too much low rep training, uh, they start complaining of joint issues, so I need to back up a little more often. Yeah, that's a very good point that you made then. Um, how often would you program two or more of these phases back-to-back? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, with uh, with most online clients or even, uh, let's say, uh, general pop people that trains year-round with no specific uh, time, time goals, uh, I will just, like, alternate accumulation, intensification, accumulation, like, nonstop, okay? Uh, but with um, sports like, like hockey, for instance, they have a very short uh, off-season. So to be honest with them, uh, we'll use more of a linear periodization. And the reason is uh, the main advantage of accumulation or undulating periodization is that over time you're not losing the previous quality you've trained. But if your off-season is only 8 or 9 or 10 weeks, I mean, and you've done your high-rep hypertrophy work phase 1, it's not like it was that long that you're going to lose all the gains you've had in that phase. So I prefer using more of a linear approach. So I might do depending on the needs of the client. So if the hockey player, let's say, is a smaller guy, and I know that to increase his performance, we need to focus on hypertrophy, I might do a 2-1 periodization scheme in which it's accumulation 1 followed by accumulation 2 followed by intensification 1 before he peaks. I will always finish with intensification. But if it's somebody that is on the flip side, he needs more strength than hypertrophy, it might be um, accumulation one, intensification one, intensification two. Okay. So, so these are when I'm typically going to stack two of the same back-to-back. Yeah, and obviously, um, like you were saying before, you take into account with the uh, complaining of joints and things like that when making decisions like that, I guess, as well. Yeah, uh, this will uh, mostly, with me, it will, it will mostly affect the length of each cycle. So, you know, somebody who's more, uh, has more joint issue, it might be, let's say, a four-week uh, accumulation phase followed by a two-week intensification phase and on and on. Very good. Uh, when and how often uh, would you, uh, you're, you've got here that uh, I read in your book, you speak about doing high-frequency training and that um, basically putting back-to-back rest days uh, would give a 30% better recovery. Uh, yeah. Could you please elaborate on that? It, like instead of splitting it between the week, so say a Wednesday and a, and a Saturday, say for a rest period, you, uh, you talk about putting back-to-back days, increasing uh, recovery when doing high-frequency training. Yeah, so um, just to make sure I understand, so you want me to expand on like the, the split I use between that Monday to Friday or the reasons as to why it increases uh, recovery? Yeah, more the reasons as to why it increases the recovery, having those two days back-to-back as opposed to split. Yeah, I mean, the, the reasons, they're more uh, like this, to be honest. I'll give credit where credit is due. I learned this uh, tip from Nelson Ayat. Uh, when I first started uh, with the uh, Central Institute for Human Performance. And him, what he did is he was the Canadian uh, head strength coach for the biathlon team. And uh, at the time, they uh, used a lot of uh, blood tests and uh, metabolic profile to analyze training protocols. And uh, by doing five days on, two days off, instead of having one day's off here and there, like there was 30 more, uh, 30% uh, better recovery in terms of all the blood markers, you know, from 
you know, like testosterone levels and all that kind of stuff. So when I heard about that and I saw him use it on his client, I started doing it myself on uh, my power athletes and man, it worked really well. The gains were so much quicker. So I just stuck to it over time. Yeah. So you, you mainly use that with power athletes. Would you use that with bodybuilders? I, I use it with bodybuilders as well because they like they usually get way more average total volume in a training year. So, uh, but but you see again, it depends. There's also the psychological component of coaching. Um, some athletes they just like if you give them two days off mentally, it's like it's too long. They freak out, or they, it might be long enough for them to uh, fall off the wagon. Uh, with nutrition and all that stuff. So I take that into account. But if I go purely in a physiological perspective, I will always start first with the, the five days on, two days off. Um, and it, it tends to work pretty well. Yeah, I totally agree with the psychological side of things. Um, I think placebo is so underrated as well as um, where, the, where the mind will go, the body normally follows. So if, you, if your mind's not in it, your body's going to follow yeah, I mean for sure because like I've seen it like some like I would I would give out this protocol and then like after a, a month or, or so I would realize that the client because he has off of training like he starts cheating on his diet from Friday night all the way up to Sunday night. So, you know, you're not going to gain gains even though physiologically it might be better to have two days off. Yeah. And with frequency of training uh in your experience what have you found to work best um like some people say training a body part twice a week, some say three times a week. Uh, what have you found to work best? Yeah, um, uh, for me with athletes, what I've noticed is uh, the more, the closer you are to your 1RM in your training, the less frequency. So like for me, let's say I would, I will split the workout in four. So let's say one day chest and back, one day like a quad dominant type workout, one day arms and shoulders and one day posterior chain because at that point you're really pounding the weights you're really driving the nervous system you want to make sure the nervous system recuperates and that goes back to that uh, good old principle of the uh, nervous system taking five to six times longer to recuperate in the metabolic system but now on the flip side if i'm doing so let's say i'm in the general preparation phase and I'm way earlier on in the off season and the client is not as well conditioned um, and we're doing like 10, 12 reps or whatever, then I might just do a upper body one, lower body one, upper body two, lower body two. And the same movement pa pattern might repeat twice during the week. And that I find the gains more, more uh, uh, I find the, the clients have better gains than if I were to split it in a seven day uh, type deal. Yeah. Just, just giving, giving the body more exposure to, to be able to adapt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I did a private internship with Charles uh, probably yeah. two years ago now, and I did. Um, he spoke of the fastest way he's found uh, to put some size on people's legs is to get them to squat frequently. And um, he, he spoke about this six times a week squatting program. Uh, it's not something I'd recommend to everyone, but um, I found yeah. that I definitely put a lot of size on my legs. Uh, but what I did find is that uh, each session you have to keep it short and you can't always go to failure. Do you know what I mean? Like it's more a case of you're stimulating than you are annihilating each workout. Yeah. So I found that worked quite well. Uh, being a guy with uh, chicken legs <laughs> as a kid. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I don't disagree. Uh, this would work well. Uh, but honestly, I would only do with, with um, like gen pop or um, – bodybuilders uh, i would not do it with an athlete simply because um to me with an athlete they don't compete to be a great squatter they don't compete to have huge legs they compete to be better athletes and whatever they do and if i if i spend so much time squatting and i'm taking away from uh, things like split squats or deadlift or stuff that i know will also help with their performance i don't like it but you're right on a purely hypertrophy perspective uh, as long as you don't go all out with these sessions, I mean, it's it's kind of like when you think about it, it's kind of like the same uh, concept uh, that you see with uh, cyclists. You know, like those short track cyclists, like it's 
intense um, anaerobic um, workouts every day, just smashing their legs. And when you look at these guys like on a pound for pound basis, their legs are huge. But it's not they're not they're not cycling once every seven days or cycling almost every day, you know, so and the the, the body being a adaptative machine it just slowly adapts, but I did find that um i I could only do it for a set period of time. I found about two weeks worked best for me um, yeah. and then and then I did find that my strength started to actually drop yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I'll be honest. Like the, those, I uh, I've tried it on myself. I've never, I've never tried, I've never tried on a client. So I don't, I can't really speak from experience of those like super high um, frequency. Uh, I've never, I've never done it with clients. Yeah. I mean, on myself, it worked pretty well. Yeah, yeah. I, I personally have never done it with clients either. Just um, in the off chance that they uh, get carried away, there's obviously high risk factor. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. With um, main lifts and remedial lifts, do you use percentages between, say, your bench press, trap three, to rotate a cuff? And um, do you, when I say that, do you use the same uh, percentages you are using when you're working for Poliquin? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, the the thing is, um, you know, like I've been using those the PICP percentages since since two since 1999 so i've been using them and repeating them training my clients like all the time so for me um to change what i know as a work you know i'm not going to do that but i will say though that i over time because i've trained so many athletes i you know i created and i gathered my own numbers on other lifts as well that i find works well but the ones that are thought taught in picp works very well the exception is uh, rotator cuff, trap three, uh, power raise, and uh, bent over lateral raise. There's a limit to those percentages, and by what I mean by that is when you train really, really strong athletes. Uh, which, to be honest, like the, those numbers were based on the Canadian Winter Olympic uh, people. So I, outside of bobsledders, there's not a lot of like beast in the weight room. But when you train uh, NFL linemen and their average uh, close grip bench press and, uh, and the structural balance is over 400 pounds uh, or like 185 kilos. I mean, it's you're not going to do your eight reps of rotator cuff with a 40-pound dumbbell. It just won't happen. So with those guys, how have you found to work best for them? Like Honestly, if you can get them to about uh, 5 or 6%, you're usually good. But it's, I just have never, have never been able to, with a 400-plus pound bench, I've never been able to get to match that percentage. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that, that's, that to me, that's the limit of it. But uh, usually, uh, otherwise, I always strive to get these numbers. What were the other numbers that you were mentioning? Um, are they with, like, particular lifts? So, say, uh, your bench press versus your, your overhead press? Is that yeah, so so you know, so like in PICP, like they, they don't talk about the deadlift, but I use the deadlift a lot, so I have uh, numbers for that, I have numbers for the overhead press, um, which uh, in PICP it's the behind the neck press, I have numbers for push press, um, you know, like those big, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the big lifts. Um, what would your numbers for sorry to interrupt you, what would the numbers for your deadlift be? Um, I mean, I, I don't feel comfortable giving those out because I usually give it out to uh, um, paying uh, clients. But um, it's, uh, I mean, deadlift. Um, I'm sorry, I don't feel comfortable saying it. No, no, that's okay. Sorry for pushing you. No, that's okay. Um, with tendons and ligaments, so uh, when getting clients really strong at a rapid rate, how have you found to work best uh, for preparing someone's tendons, ligaments to take uh, excessive load? Yeah, um, like if I'm not uh, talking about supplements, uh, I usually like to spend a decent amount of time doing higher rep training, especially if their if their uh, training age is not too high. I might spend twelve or even maybe twenty four weeks, mostly just. 
like above functional hypertrophy, just to really prepare the, the, the joints for the range of motion. Um, but obviously, if the guy can use uh, supplements, uh, I would push for a lot of, uh, you know, fish oil, um, the product that um, uh, Polican Group has, Sinuplex, uh, so anything that I can think of that can support joint uh, yeah. uh, repair, I will typically, um, like, prescribe it or suggest it, um, not you know, not while they're doing eye rep training, but as soon as they switch to lower rep, to uh, low rep training for their first phase, especially that's when I'm going to introduce it. Um, but you know, for just a good base of higher rep training, like a basic GPP tends to prepare the athletes pretty well. Awesome. So just, uh, I guess the classic periodization of starting with the high reps and phasing down. Yeah. Awesome, and then um, I like the the addition of uh, phasing the supplementation into support tendon lig- tendons and ligaments as well. That's a good idea. Yeah, no, it works well. I mean, it's harder with athletes because there are so many regulations in their in their sports, but with general pup, it's it's pretty. It's a good tool. Yeah. Uh, with, with athletes, uh, what supplements have you found to be a problem? <laughs> I mean, in my earlier days, none of them. But uh, with all the 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 whole uh, major league baseball like steroid scandals, like they they've been so stringent on rules and regulation that um, by the late two thousand like two thousand and eight two thousand and nine, if your supplement was not NSF cert- certified, it did not matter if it was pharmaceutical grade. If there was not a NSF or sport logo on the bottle, the athletes just couldn't take it couldn't That's and crazy. then it, de- it depended on, on the teams you know like the the clients i had with the um the st louis rams meh, their strength coach their management didn't care so much but the st louis cardinals it was forget it you couldn't so you, you know so now it's easier because they're coming up with more and more um nsf uh, product but it's just like in 2008 there was not even nsf fish oil well, has Polyquin Group got in um, sort of created an arrangement to get their products uh, NSF certified or anything like that? Is that possible? Yeah, well, they have the, the sister company called uh, the Fuel Nutrition, in which I think they, they have 11 or 12 products, and they're all NSF, NSF certified for sports, so those are no problem. And, you know, like they have the basics, Foundation 5 and, you know, some uh, workout stuff, so that's pretty good. Interesting. What's your opinion on deloads, Stefan? So do you use them? Yes, I do. Um, I really like them, uh, especially for people training long-term. Um, but it, it depends. Like, I, I really like them. I use them. But if you ask me, do I use them a lot? Not necessarily because um, most of my online clients, uh, they're on three-week cycles and uh, they're on a you know, once every seven day split. So the three week cycle, it's only three workouts. So I don't find that if they bust their balls for like three workouts in an intensification, let's say, and then we switch right into an accumulation, I find that it's 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 just good enough so that they don't really need a deload. But um, if the um, the phase is longer, or if the the frequency within the cycle in a within a, a phase is is higher, then I will tend to prescribe deloads anywhere from forty to sixty percent, and typically on the third workout. That's yeah. how I do it. Yeah, no, that's a good point because I I do find that typically not everyone, but most will tend to peak around that third workout. So uh, I guess peaking their intensification phase and then swapping them into an accumulation phase where I guess the, the loads instantly come down. It's almost a, a deload in terms of load in itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good structuring there, Stefan. Promise. <laughs> uh, do you train females and male clients differently at all? Uh, mm, I mean, yes and no. I mean, if it's physique, you know, um, yes. Like I will be... I will use different splits because they have different priorities. You know, damn, it's all about, uh, uh, you know, shoulder, small waist and uh, wide lats and all that stuff. 
but in terms of uh, you know like uh, intensity and rest period typically um, I will always go like a, a rep bracket above or uh, like a 15 15 seconds lower in rest period but it's pretty much the same thing I'll be honest they do can tolerate more volume in general yeah but I'm, I, no, I can't say that it's drastically different. Yeah. Those are some good points, though, because I guess a female's central nervous system isn't necessarily as, as good as a male's, um, and their cardiovascular system is definitely better than most guys. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's not something I, I, I don't write a lot of a German body comp. It's rare I do that, but that's something you notice. If you do a German body comp and a... A 200-pound guy, uh, you give him 75 seconds rest and he's going to puke halfway into the workout. You give the exact same workout to a, uh, a girl with 30 seconds rest and they're barely sweating. So that, so that you kind of have to, to readjust. But the reality is once um, training age is, once you have, you know, over two years of training age uh, with proper training, it's the the field like it's pretty much leveled off. There's not much difference. I mean, there's one of my female clients that I train. I mean, she's so freaking strong that I, I I have to treat her as a basically a pro athlete in terms of volume recovery. You know, so it's it's not as much gender as it's plays, but I find it's more so in the beginning and the earlier phases of training. Yeah. Your personal system, Stefan, the Kazult Special, um, with this, you've got the A's being a 5010 tempo, B's 5050, um, C's 5550, um, and all three to five reps. How did you come up with this system? And like, uh, why, I guess, those numbers specifically? Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing about that is I don't know, like, I did not come up with this system. It's uh, the little story behind this is, in 2010, when I did my PICP level four uh, in class, like Andre was teaching the class, and he asked students to give a bunch of training methods for hypertrophy, and I started talking about this one, and people were like, "Wow, like what's that? I've never heard of it." So I just started talking about it, and that, that one night, Jonathan Wong, a, a coach from Singapore, like he wrote down on his computer in his hotel room like all the methods that the coaches talked about and i guess because he didn't there was no name to it he called it the caso special and it's only like years after that i knew that so kind of like the name stayed but i learned it from uh, larry vinette he's a bodybuilding coach in montreal and he was like my first mentor like he's the first coach i ever hired in 1998 so it's a it's a bodybuilding method it's great for hypertrophy and why the reps are at three to five it's just because of the tempo. So if you look at the A series, the A series, it's like five reps with a five zero one zero tempo. So we're talking about 30 seconds time under tension. Then you go to the B series, you got five reps again, but it's 5050. So now not only are you drastically changing the speed of contraction, but now you're going from 30 seconds of time under tension to 50 seconds time under tension. So you're, hit, you're hitting different fibers. Then the C series, you have five reps again, but now it's a five 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 zero. So now you're at seventy five seconds under tension. So it's a good, it's a good method uh, to break a plateau because you have all these changes in in the velocity, and you're hitting a wide range of more units from you know faster twitch to slower twitch fibers. So I wouldn't you know I wouldn't train like that all the time, but it's a good plateau buster. But I, so I don't know who invented it. I don't know if it's Larry, but that, I learned it from Larry Vinette. Yeah. How, how was he when he found out that you got your name to it? <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I, <laughs> we've never talked about it. <laughs> I saw it once and a, a student showed me the, the little sheet that Jonathan Wong did. I'm like, huh, that's funny. Like, uh, so it just stayed, but I, I didn't invent it. Yeah. So with this next question, I, I hate to, I know it's being uh, very vague, 
but yeah. obviously uh, any th- any information that I can get out of you is awesome. So uh, with set amount with with clients uh, programs in terms of say an intensification phase, in terms of getting someone stronger, do you have like a set amount of weight that you you kind of expect a client to progress by? like a target that they should hit each week or uh, do you sort of just like uh, write the program and uh, make sure that they're progressing? Yeah. I mean, it, it's hard. Like I, I do have targets, but it's kind of, it's kind of hard. Like the first phase you, you kind of have to let the athlete go naturally and you see what he can do because uh, generally speaking, the more advanced and the closer to, you are to one R, to your one RM, usually the gains in strength from workout to workout are going to be about two percent. Um, the higher the reps, like that percentage goes up a little bit, not dramatically. Like we're talking about three, maybe four percent. But then, um, if you have people um, that are kind of like more beginners, or you know, like you always have lifters that I'm kind of like that. If I'm, let's say I haven't deadlifted in, let's say, I don't know, five months, okay? And I I do my first deadlift workout for six reps. I might end up only doing 275 pounds. But by my third or fourth workout, I'll be up over the 500s. So it's just like my body needs those sessions to kind of like relearn that that like uh, neural firing pathways to be able to do the movement properly. So it takes me a while. So am I, am I going to use for me on a movement like deadlift at the typical 2% gain? No. So you kind of have to, to see who you're working with to truly have a, a real numbers. But, you know, general, generally speaking, between 2 and 5%, you're going to hit most people. Yeah. I like what you said about at the start, you've got to sort of let them go. And then you can kind of find out, um, I guess, what, what's uh, normal for that person? Because I guess everyone's different. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like online, you know, I mean, I like, I'm lucky because most of the people who buy online training, they buy a year. So I like it because I know we have, we have time to, you know, have time to like really assess them and see what's going on. Because when you don't see, when you don't coach them, it's really, really hard. When I have them in front of me, like the pro athletes that I train, I was lucky enough that I could train them four or five times a week, year round. So it's not like I just saw them like once a month or something. I saw them every workout, every sessions. So I could I could figure it, figure things out so much quicker as to how to adapt the workout and the training. But online, it's too difficult. And sometimes my definition of something might not be the same as the other person. And, you know, some things get lost in translation over time, and it might take a couple of weeks before you figure it out. So, Yeah, and sometimes you got to, I guess, figure out is, is that that person really pushing themselves? And it, I guess it's, it's definitely harder online than it would be face-to-face. Exactly. Like, who knows? Like, maybe the, the person, like, everything looks good on paper, but maybe he's, uh, like, he's stopping every set three reps short of failure. I don't know. Do you, do you ever get clients to send you, say, um, say it's the final week on their program and they're, they're going for, uh, I guess, let's say, let's say a PB? Do you get them to film that for you? Yeah, yeah. Like I, um, I get videos all the time from my clients, so that's pretty cool. And so I can see like technical flaws or no, yeah, that's, they're, they're very good with that. Yeah, and you, you see a lot when someone's going for a, a PB, don't you? It definitely um definitely exposes a lot of weaknesses yeah because the yeah because you can't hide the weaknesses when you're going for a like a two three rm or something like that yeah you see, you see everything i've got a, a couple of questions here from a post i put yes. on facebook so if that's okay with you uh is that all right if i go ahead with those yeah for sure so andrew Locke asks he said uh, how do you estimate determine a client's recovery ability in regards to training volume and intensity before uh, giving them a program yeah uh, so you know a, a lot of it is just like the, the initial question and answers and gauge their past training their goals their nutritional status their experience training age and all that kind of stuff then i go with a general guideline but how i really adjust it though it goes with um, uh, keeping track of uh, their their training so for instance like this guy that i trained 
fairly advanced trainee, uh, but we started with uh, these phases were 30 days. Uh, within 30 days, he would do each workout six times. And uh, he progressed really, really well for maybe three phases. But then I noticed that uh, his workout five and six, his load was actually less than his workout four. So I decided to let him do one more uh, one more cycle just to make sure that, you know, it was not like uh, he was tired this, this week or whatever. And the same thing happened. So it's at that point that I dropped the, the, his training uh, phases from six workouts to four workouts. And then he was very good. He progressed for maybe eight more months. And then after workout three, workout four for two f phases in a row, the load came down. So dropped it down to three times. So that's how I assess it. Th that's so, a very good assessment. Yeah. So, you know, you're not guessing. You're really going because the, the problem too, like if you, if you have someone that is training ability at the time allows him to improve for six workouts, it means that his nervous system needs these six workouts to get all the benefits of the exercise. But if I change the workout after three workouts, when he would progress for six, then I, I'm shortchanging him on his potential. I love that. That's great. Yeah. Andrew's final question is uh, regarding recovery and programming. How do you adjust and consider age and gender when programming? I think we, we touched on the gender. So let, let's touch on the age. Um, the age, so um, for me, training age is much more important. Uh, but obviously, so if we're talking about teens, um, I don't have a ton of experience with teens myself. But, uh, you know, like the, the, the whole training parameters will change. But uh, generally speaking, like the older the person's training age, you know, the more complex, the more intense, um, the shorter the the, the the phases will be the more variation between phases there, there will be so a somebody with a low training age uh, the variations from accumulation to in intensification might just be five percent but somebody really advanced i might push it up to 15 percent uh, because their, their nervous system needs this to create a a stimulus or a response but if you do the same thing with a somebody with a low training age then you're screwing him up because his body just cannot adapt properly to that huge change in intensity but um but then you have to account the fact that after 35 40 years of age then endogenous hormone production is less uh, recovery is less life stressors are more so obviously total sets will be monitored, uh, frequency will be monitored. So there's so many factors just outside of just age per se, but I always look at age and training age. Yeah, yeah, both those are good considerations. I've now got a couple of questions from my boss, uh, Mark. Yes. With your vast knowledge in the industry, was there anything that was taught at the Polican Group or Polican in general that uh, you didn't agree with on a personal level uh, or from personal experience? Uh, things that I didn't agree. Nah, not, I mean, not necessarily things that I did not agree with, but let's say things that I don't uh, necessarily use in my own practice. There would be more of that than things I didn't agree with. So, for instance, stretching. So stretching is part of the curriculum. Um, like Jazz Banda loves stretching, so he teaches all the... He taught all the stretching component of it. That's great, but it's just not something that I, I highly believe in simply because I think um, in order for stretching to be really efficient, you need to devote a lot of time to it. And uh, when you're being paid hourly for training sessions and you're doing the, your little 10, 15 minutes stretching at the end, uh, it's just nothing, nothing happens with that. So to me, you know, it's not, I don't believe in it. I just don't really use it. Yeah. What what kind of stretching would you get your clients to do? If any, I just, I, honestly, I don't really do it. Yeah. Just, no, that's I, cool. I mean, I, I was fortunate, um, uh, with the chiropractor I worked with in, in St. Louis, 
he was one of only two in the U.S. to be very proficient in dynamic neuromuscular stabilization at the time. And, and you know, he was very quick to show me that uh, range of motion is so um, related to the central nervous system that, you know, it's so much more complex than just doing a few uh, myofascial release or, you know, static stretching. Like if I was going to use stretching, you know, like... Uh, you know, something like PNF or PNF variations, like, you know, at least there's much, uh, much more neural component to it. So I would do that. I know it sounds controversial what I'm saying nowadays, but it's just, it's just my own personal experience, uh, you know, with proper treatments and DNS and rebooting the nervous system. Like you don't really need stretching. Yeah. So. You, it's a case of training correctly in the first place. Um, and then I guess uh, getting soft tissue work done uh, with, like for, for myself, I see three different people for soft tissue work. Um, so for me, I, I personally don't do a whole lot of stretching, but um, like in terms of activation work, so I'll do like um, some activation work before I, I start the workout just to get my joints uh, warmed up, so to speak. Uh, but in terms of stretching, I don't sit there and stretch out my hamstrings or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, again, like the the thing though, I, um, like the um, the the rebuttal that I've had from some uh, uh, fellow coaches is that uh, the average, the general pup that don't move and sit all day, they're so stiff that he can't really do any movements properly. Yeah, maybe these guys stretching would help but the problem is again are they coming to you because they want to be more flexible or are they paying you three times a week because they want to lose weight so if they want to lose weight and you spend 45 minutes stretching you know are they going to stay with you i don't yeah. know it's 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 a it's a complex topic um but uh you know the, if you start training properly earlier on and you you're careful and how you plan your training i think you can you know get along with keeping stretching to a minimal. Yeah, stretching is definitely specific to the person. And um, for us at Enterprise, we just show them through the what they've got to do to warm up at the start. And we don't do it again with them unless obviously they, they don't understand it. But it's definitely not incorporated into the workout, so to speak. Yeah. Um, otherwise, yeah, you know, it's pretty, I mean, yeah, biosig, you know, they're, there might be stuff here and there that, you know, I, I disagree with or, but generally speaking, I mean, uh, like I said earlier, I, I've been kind of involved with Polykin since uh, 2001. So, and I've been using a lot of their techniques. So, you know, I've perfected them over time. Uh, I'm very analytical. Um, that's how I improve. I did not necessarily improve by, reading uh, 1200 books you know I, I really improved by coaching analyzing assessing coaching analyzing assessing and um, so that that's how i came about uh, improving program design yeah have you fallen into any uh traps with like uh, say doing too much remedial work in the past have you found that to be a problem uh, no i don't have i don't think i've ever done too much remedial work to be honest i I typically do, uh, I train them 12 weeks and then I stay out of it except certain people. There are certain people, if you don't do it at least once a week, they regress really, really quickly. So these, I might, you know, keep two or three sets here and there once a week or once every other phase to make sure they maintain. But, um, you know, you can, you can pretty much gauge, you, you can auto-regulate with their training uh, if you, because you know, you you'll know it if it's time to incorporate more remedial work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. His final question is: uh, in terms of, like, for you being a go-to guy, um, in terms of periodization, what coach for you was the most paradigm shifting, and what have you done differently since learning from them? Yeah, I mean, I'm, obviously, like for me, it was a. Uh, uh, Charles Polykin, because so I started training, I was 11, and I was, you know, reading uh, books and uh, magazines, and and uh, I read, 
1997, that's the first time I, I read or heard about Charles Polican, and it was the Muscle Media 2000 with Shannon Sharp on the cover. And I was like, wow, like that, that thing is so different. It's, it's cool. And, and then a year later in 98, I, I, I hired uh, Larry Vinette to do my programs. And then I'm seeing the tempos and the A1, A2 and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, hey, uh, that's Charles stuff. How do you learn about it? And Charles, you know, like he, he started his master's degree in Montreal. So at the time in the early to mid nineties, he had a big presence in Montreal. So Larry did a lot of uh, courses with him at the time. So, so that's when I kind of got my, my peak for uh, all that Charles, like Pollockian stuff. So it, it, it stemmed from there and like it completely, completely changed the way I view and thought about training. Uh, so I became a, a trainer at 21 and I've started using his stuff right off the bat. And like, like I said earlier, I didn't, I tried a bunch of stuff, but I always kind of stuck to it because to me it worked so well and, uh, you know. So I can't, that, that for me was definitely the, the main uh, guy for me in terms of strength coaches. Yeah. And then everything else, I guess, has sort of uh, been from uh, in the trenches work, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I obviously have my, like, like everybody, we all have like um, uh, authors that we like reading from, but as far as, a, you know, an actual coach that I've met and, and learned from specifically, it's definitely Charles. I'm a huge fan of your ebook, Stefan, uh, The 66 Strategies to Program Design. How can our listeners find this ebook? Uh, yeah, so it's on uh, Amazon, Amazon.com, or even on the Australian, Canadian, um, UK store. Um, you go into search engine, either write down my name or uh, the title of the book, and you'll find it there. It's a great book because it's uh, very to the point. Yeah, I mean, that that was kind of my goal because personally, like, the thing about most training books is I find, like, it's always very general, but then, like, you're, you're reading it, then you're like, okay, great, that's cool, but how do I put it in the training week? How do I put it in a three-month three period? How do I incorporate this training with energy system work so i kind of wanted to give like specific tidbits of all of this for people to kind of understand like uh, my thought process basically on programming so to, to me it was very different than from what was out there that's why i was motivated to do it it's definitely an easy read and it's um very very educational thank you you're welcome um what what books have helped you the most uh, you said you haven't read a lot of books, but um, is there? Oh, I've, I've I've read a lot of books, but what I what I meant by that is, uh, I'm not like because uh, a lot of coaches that I meet sometimes it's like they're they're reading a new book every month as if because they're trying to find like the next be the be best thing or their missing link, but that's that's not how I see it. Uh, so I so to me my favorite authors are like. Uh, Deep Marsh, Mip Liker, Harold Tuneman, uh, Jurgen Hartman, Vladimir Zatsiorsky, Gilles Kometsi. Uh, he, he's only been translated. He's, he's French. He's been translated in Italian, in Spanish. I've never seen anything in English. But, <laughs> but, but to me, uh, these guys, they're like they, they, they go so deep in the actual physiology of weight training that my reasoning was. I don't want to read books to learn a cool new method. I want to read books to completely understand the physiology of exercise, of training. And I find that if you truly understand training and you, and you remember and apply the sound principles of strength and of strength training, you will get results and you will find ways yourself uh, to, to come up with, uh, with ideas like the, the, that, that program that I did, and that's me, that I did it for real, that, that was not Larry Vinette, but that the ascending velocity body comp training that uh, I wrote, you know, that, that's, that was straight up just me using uh, sound exercise phys physiology principles that I learned in these books and came up with the method. So that's, so whenever I do internship with uh, students, that's what I try to tell them. I'd rather, I'd rather you master three books, almost to the point where you know it by heart, 
than tell me that you've read 500 books on training. Yeah, absolutely. Because the, the more you know about the principles, the more you can sort of have an open mind as to, okay, this is what's happening to my client. Why is this happening? And how do I make it happen more to keep them progressing, so to speak? Or if they're yeah. not progressing, how can I get them progressing? Exactly. When you get caught up in, say, a, a system, so to speak, uh, it definitely shuts your mind off and puts some blinkers on so you can't actually uh, think of ways to actually keep them progressing. Yes, I see. Uh, that's I don't like that approach, like um, being... People who are in their practice, they just use they just use methods. It's like one month they're doing they're doing GBC, the month after GBT, the month after patient lifters, the month after. I mean, it's just it doesn't work like that. You, you have to be more analytical and reactive to your client's progress in order to periodize. So you know, if you understand training instead of knowing methods, I think you'd be better off as a strength as a strength coach. That's definitely a good. Uh case in point to to end on there stefan i've got one last question for you yes sir have you have you come out to australia before i never have no oh wow we'll, we'll um have to see if we can arrange that to happen if that's something that uh you're interested in no yes i i am actually uh you know i've had a couple of requests from uh, students to um to go um towards their way and this is definitely something i i, I want to do uh, but right now, with uh, my focus on Kilo and uh, building the facility here in, in California, uh, I can't see myself doing this until uh, 2017, but I, that's definitely something I want to do. That's great news. Yeah. Thanks again, Stefan, for taking the time out uh, to have a chat with us today. How can our listeners stay up to date with your tips and insights on uh, strength and conditioning? Yeah, so um, I mean, I have an Instagram page, uh, Stefan.Caso. Uh, I have my Facebook page. Um, there's uh, the KiloStrengthSociety.com website. I mean, it's not it's not completely done and up to date now, but you can still access it. Uh, but it's mostly my the social media right now, the best source. Yeah, and just before you go, what what would your ideal clientele be? Just so the listeners know, um, I guess. Uh, if they were to contact you, if uh, if they were the right fit for you, I mean, my true love is strength. So, uh, if your goal is uh, strength, you want to get stronger, um, you know, and you you want to learn because that's my favorite aspect. I want to give you a program, but I want you to ask me questions. I want you to understand it. I want you to get to a point where you can design your own training program. So that would so like students for me, PICP students for me are great because of that. So that would be my ideal. I mean, I I can try. You know, I train uh, I train clients in almost any sport or for any endeavor. But strength is definitely my my passion. Awesome. Thanks very much, Stefan. Uh, enjoy the rest of your night. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I really, really, really hoped you liked that podcast. Some great information about programming and design and all those good things that make up a good program to get people results. Stefan dropping truth bombs and Reese asking the great questions uh, right from the cranium that is the great Reese Adams. So updates on Enterprise Fitness. Obviously, Wolfpack is kicking along, going really, really well. We're up to seminar three. We just finished seminar three of five. Uh, in the Wolf Pack, we had Bob Gill down. That was absolutely amazing. Four days with Bob. He was just incredible amount of detail about functional uh, health and supplementation and vitamins, minerals, amino acids, getting into the real nit and gritty. We filmed all five days because one of those days was obviously with me and four days with Bob. And it was, it was amazing. And uh, you can expect that we'll be doing it again. Again, for the Wolfpack, um, you know, registrations have actually opened. You can leave your name um, on, you know, check it out on either the Maximus Mark site or the Enterprise site for, for Wolfpack 2017. You know, I only take 20 on and uh, it's intense, intense learning. So if you want more info on that, check us out. We've got internships coming up. We've got the How to Train the Female coming up. Also, Reese and I are going to Perth with the great Mike Thornton, who's having us down at Raw Fitness 24-7. 
Uh, that's going to be a cracker seminar with Reese and I teaching them how to train the female. But you know, if you're in Melbourne and you want to come to our studio at Enterprise Fitness in Richmond, uh, you know, hook us up. Uh, let us know. We're running courses all of July, basically three courses in July. So uh, you know, it's going to be going to be a lot of fun and, and quite a busy month for us. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. As I said before, if you want more info on Stefan, visit kilostrengthsociety.com or just look him up on Facebook. Easy enough to find. You can find links in the show notes or on, on this page where you probably downloaded this from. Please, 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 please leave us a review on iTunes and on SoundCloud if you use SoundCloud as well. Share us on Facebook. Absolutely feel free to share these podcasts. Let your friends know where the good information is at. Spread the word and spread the love. Till next time, supplement smart, eat well, and train hard.